0: Good morning. morning. Thanks again to uh, Greg and Mary Ellen and Brian, the Fifth Sunday team. I I know there's a band called Third Day. Maybe you guys could be Fifth Sunday. (laughs) Um, So we're thrilled to have them there. Let me, um, just to follow on with the announcement that Jen made, the family meeting on the 12th is going to be to kind of continue the discussion we've been having about our facility situation. Um, Joe is actually right now informing the EDGE kids that they will be um, invited to be pressed into service after the service on the 12th to watch the kids. We really are going to try to figure out how we can maximize the number of adults who can be in here undistracted. Uh, So uh, stay tuned for um, what you may need to tell your kids they have to do after the service on the 12th. But uh, we look forward to that. Again, uh, as I announced before, we have formally uh, inked our agreement with Pleasant Hill to uh, extend the lease here for six months through the end of June. And um, they have formally told us that they are interested in potentially selling the property to us, and they will have a number to us by late January. Um, And so of the various things that we have to consider... Uh, One of them is the possibility of whether we buy the building and for how much, and uh, if not, uh, do we continue to lease here, or is God calling us to be someplace else? So we would continue to encourage you to be in prayer about that. Uh, If you have any specific questions, please do not hesitate uh, to bring them to uh, any elder. Um, And if you happen to know of another property that has at least 5,000 square feet of usable space, Rob Hobson or Billy Halliday would be happy to hear about it and uh, to determine whether it's something that would be a viable possibility thanks to all of you who have been uh, sending them uh, ideas and possibilities for places we could be. So, here we are back in Romans. <clears throat> and as you may recall with fondness. We began this fall our study of Romans chapters 9 through 11, one of the most difficult passages in all of the New Testament, all of Scripture, really. And you may be wondering, why are we doing this? You may wonder why we're taking four years to go through Romans. You may wonder why... We would take a whole year of that to go through chapters 9 through 11. After all, it is somewhat dense. Very few of these passages give us the opportunity at the end to say, therefore, in light of what we have read today, here is how I'm going to live my life differently. Much of this has to do with how we think, how we understand God and his purposes, what he has been doing. And so you may be wondering why. I know I often feel like the guy on the cover of the bulletin as I think about going into yet another sermon on one of these difficult passages. But the answer is that we are evangelicals. More broadly, I think the answer of why we're doing it is that we're new hope. This is the sort of thing that you would expect us to do. And we as evangelicals in the time and place where God's put us are people who are going to take this much time and this much care to go through this difficult passage. So, let's remember, if we can, what it means for us to be evangelicals. Does anybody remember the first word, the first of the five Words or phrases that mark us out as evangelicals. Mary, Scripture, 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 the fancy term being Biblicism, but we are Bible people. And so as far as we're concerned, and this is especially our deal here at New Hope, all of this is fair game for the pulpit. I think we have demonstrated that in 10 years. All of this, we believe, is God's word that he has revealed to us. We believe it's inspired. We believe it's authoritative for all matters of faith and practice. We believe that it is all good and that it is all to be read and studied and digested and somehow preached. What that means is that we don't dodge the tricky stuff. There are many churches that have preached through Romans chapters 1 through 8. And maybe later on they'll come back to 12 to 16, which has a lot of that good application stuff in it. Some people even believe that Romans 9 to 11 is sort of a parenthetical digression, that Paul was getting off topic, that he went down a rabbit trail. Other people think it was a sermon that he had sitting around in his back pocket. You know, they tell every preacher, you should always have a sermon in your back pocket because you never know when somebody's going to call upon you to preach. and maybe Paul had this and he figured he'd, I don't know, maybe somebody thought he was getting paid by the word and he'd drop this in there and bulk up his his letter. I don't think that makes any sense of the letter to the Romans. The more I read this, the more I believe that 9 to 11 really is kind of the climax of what Paul is trying to present here in this letter. But we Because we are Bible people, we believe that all of Scripture is inspired and authoritative, all of it's trustworthy, all of it's reliable, all of it's important. That means that we are not going to skip over any of it. And it's because we believe all Scripture is important that we have to understand it as a whole. Because here in Romans 9 to 11 we find ourselves having to grapple with the kinds of things that we read on Christmas Eve. Amidst all the chaos, you, remember, you may remember we were reading in Jeremiah, the end of chapter 31, and God says, "...that the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will plant the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the offspring of men and of animals." Just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring disaster, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, declares Yahweh. In those days, people will no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. The time is coming declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It won't be like the covenant that I made with their forefathers back when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, even though I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares Yahweh. I will put my Torah in their minds I will write it on their hearts I will be their God and they will be my people No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying no Yahweh because they're all going to know me from the least of them to the greatest declares Yahweh for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more And this is what Yahweh says he who appoints the day the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Yahweh, the God of angel armies, is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares Yahweh, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. This is what Yahweh says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares Yahweh. And so it makes sense when we come to places in Romans where Paul says things like, not all who are descended of Israel are Israel. Or where he says that the Messiah is the climax of Torah. Or when he says, This is how all Israel will be saved. It makes sense to say, well, how does this fit with the kind of things that God has said before? Because after all, Jeremiah is writing this after Moses in Deuteronomy said this. What I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you. Or beyond your reach, talking about Torah. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who's going to go up to heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. And it's not beyond the sea so that you have to ask who's going to cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, this word is very near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart so that you may obey it. This is the word of the old covenant. Moses says, speaking on God's behalf, this word is very near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart so that you may obey it. Yet Jeremiah had to say, no, again speaking for God, I'm going to make a new covenant. And with that new covenant, I'm going to put my law, my Torah in their minds. I'm going to write it on their hearts. And Paul is quoting these passages here in Romans 9 to 11. So as evangelicals, we receive all of this as God's word, and we try to understand it all as a whole. As evangelicals, we also are crucicentric, that second word, cross, scripture, cross. The fact is that nothing is the same after Calvary. Ours is an historically rooted faith. We say in the creeds that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He died and was buried. We affirm historical facts about things that happened. These are not abstract notions. This is not, we don't worship this God who sort of is kind of out there, does his thing, sort of has this vague relationship to us. We worship a God who put on flesh, and dwelt among us in a particular place and time. We affirm, and this is central to our faith, that the cross is not something that's optional, that Jesus is atoning death, not to mention his perfect life or his resurrection. These are not data points that we can take or leave. These things happened, and we have to deal with reality in light of the fact that they have happened. And so we understand Jesus' atoning death and his resurrection as part of God working out his sovereign purposes. And we have to understand that not only in, in terms of what happened then, but how does that relate to what came before? How does this cross thing hap- relate to what Moses was saying About Torah, how does it relate to what Jeremiah was saying about a new covenant? Give you a hint—it's really important. And what Paul is working out here in Romans nine to eleven is sort of the most his most mature theological reflection on these questions. He was not, as some commentators think, discovering as he's going along here. Exactly what he thinks about all this. This is the stuff that has been keeping Paul up at night. This is the things that, has, that have set Paul out in the desert for years with his Bible, with his scrolls of Torah and of the prophets and of the writings, puzzling out just what this one true God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was doing and had done in and through Jesus Christ and what his spirit was now working out in the church. So as evangelicals were marked out by dedication to scripture by recognition that the cross is indispensable. Anybody remember the third word? Anybody other than Mary who's special? Faith. Yes, faith. Conversionism being the fancy word. Faith. Not all, Paul says, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. You can't just sort of be born into it. We believe you can't be born into being a follower of Jesus. Somebody can baptize you when you're a baby. That's happened to many of us. But fundamentally, as evangelicals, we tend to believe that we have to respond to God's invitation to a relationship with Him, that we have to turn from our sin, that we have to deny ourselves and receive Him, and the gift of forgiveness that He offers through Jesus' blood, and that this comes not by anything we can do, this comes by faith. Incidentally, I think one of the things Paul is working out here in Romans 9 to 11 is that this is not new. His critique of his people, which he certainly identified himself as part of, was that they were trying to attain to Torah... Not by faith, but as if it were possible to do this by works. And Paul says that's not going to get you there. It's by faith now. It's always been by faith. After all, look at Abraham. How was Abraham declared righteous? Was it because of anything he did? No, it was by faith. Before any moil showed up, Abraham was declared Righteous. So these questions of how you gain access to this covenant, how don't you gain access to this covenant even if you think you are these are huge for Paul and, and what about the new covenant, how do you gain access to the new covenant, how do you become part of that and how don't you these are important questions Paul's working out here the fourth is witness And here it may be most important for us to be paying attention to our particular context. The fact is we are here in Pikesville. We are here as a church historically living and working here in the 795 corridor where a whole lot of our Jewish neighbors live and work. And the fact is The question of our Jewish neighbors and how they relate to God is a terribly controversial one among Christian theologians. And it's a really sensitive topic among our Jewish neighbors. I'm sure many of you have had the same kinds of experiences I have where a Jewish friend will just ask you point blank, do you think I'm going to hell? We need to have a decent answer to this question. And I think if it is true, as Paul says, that somehow this Jesus bit seems to be kind of important in the way God's working out what he's doing, if it is the fact that, as Jesus himself said, None comes to the Father but through me. I think we need to understand how Paul is making sense of that. Now, there are some different ways of understanding Paul. Some people understand him and decide they disagree. But there are some different ways of understanding. It's one of the reasons that we have been bringing in the guests and will continue to bring in some guests. Next week, my friend David Greenspoon will be here. He's a rabbi in the area he respects Jesus but doesn't think he's Messiah. I'm really interested in talking with him about it. and and I, it's not like I have just started talking to him about it. We're, we're good friends. We sit over beers and talk about this stuff all the time, but I'm, I, I, I'm excited that we're going to get to hear him talk about how he reads stuff like Romans 9 to 11, how he reads Jeremiah 31 and Deuteronomy 30. I think it was really useful for us to hear from A.J. Levine last month, and we'll be hearing from some other folks over the spring. That fifth mark is what? Tradition, baby. The fact is that there are ways to understand what Paul's doing here in Romans 9 to 11 that are, I think, at odds with the historic faith that Christians have professed for 2,000 years. I think there are efforts to try to make sense of Paul. In some ways, I think efforts to domesticate Paul, efforts to neuter Paul that end up in tension with some of the things that we confess, in the creeds with things that are at the core of our faith. You may have heard of the two-covenant model, the idea that God has one covenant with the Jewish people and one covenant with Christians through Jesus, and that Jesus is kind of optional if you're Jewish. Most of the folks who believe this keep counting after two, and so then they The idea that there actually are other ways that God can relate to other people. And so there are many paths up the mountain, many streams flowing to the same river. This all sounds very nice and very peaceful. Problem is, it does not fit with what is given to us in Scripture or what we have confessed as God's faithful people, Jesus' followers for 2,000 years. More broadly, these kinds of theologies end up rejecting the uniqueness of Christ. They end up rejecting the importance of what he has done, of his accomplished work on the cross and his resurrected life. Even more broadly, I think many of these theologies end up rejecting God's sovereignty, his ability to be God, think about what Paul says there in chapter 9, right? Who are you? Really? It's like the end of Job. God's like, okay, hang on a second. Where were you when I was making the foundations of the earth? I mean, seriously. Who are you to tell God he can, can't do things that you don't want him to do? And so let me finish by lovingly reading us through these chapters that we're going to be spending the next several months in. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed. And cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons. There is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of Torah, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It's not like God's word had failed. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor, because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. And yet, before the twins were born, before they'd done anything good or bad, and in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by Him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So, what are we going to say then? Is God unjust? No. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So, therefore, it doesn't depend on man's desire or effort. It depends on God's mercy. The Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, one of you is going to say, well, so why does God blame us? Who's going to resist his will? But who are you? Dirtbag to talk back to God. So what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God chosen to show his wrath and to make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. What, What if he did this in order to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be spared, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It's just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord of hosts had left us descendants, We would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. So what are we going to say? That the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have obtained it? A righteousness that is by faith? But Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not attained it? Well, why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it's written. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. But the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So, brothers, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Or I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal isn't based on knowledge. Since they didn't know the righteousness that comes from God, they sought to establish their own. It, So they didn't submit to God's righteousness. But Messiah is the culmination of Torah. So that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by Torah. The man who does these things will live by them, but the righteousness that is by faith says, don't say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend to the deep? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? It says the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they haven't believed in? And how can they, not, how can they believe in the one of whom they haven't heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I'll make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who didn't seek me. I revealed myself to those who didn't ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So I ask then, did God reject his people? Oh, no. I'm an Israelite myself. I'm a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God didn't reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? Dude, I've reserved for myself 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer by works. If it were, grace wouldn't be grace. So what then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but but the elect did. The others were hardened. As it's written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they couldn't see, and ears so that they couldn't hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they can't see, and their, eyes, their backs be bent forever. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond any hope of recovery? No. No, no, no. But but because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Now, let me talk to you, Gentiles, right now. And as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be? But life from the dead. I mean, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole branches, the whole batch is holy. If the roots holy, so are the branches. Now, some of those branches have been broken off, and if you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, if you now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, don't boast over those branches. (laughs) If you do, think about this. You don't support the root, but the root supports you. Well, you'll say, well, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Okay, granted, they were broken off because of unbelief. You stand by faith. Don't be arrogant, but be afraid. Because if God didn't spare the natural branches, He's not going to spare you either. Consider, therefore, both the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you're also going to be cut off. And if they don't persist in unbelief, they'll be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that's wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much easier is it going to be for these, the natural branches, to be grafted back into their own kind of tree? I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. This is the way that all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come to Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies on your account, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so too they have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his path beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should have to repay him? For from him and through him and to him, are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Amen.